Okay, today we're back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, as we end that chapter and one verse out of chapter 9. In October of 1781, during the American Revolutionary War, General Charles Cornwallis marched his British troops into Yorktown. Thomas Nelson, the governor of Virginia and a signer of the Declaration of Independence, was on the firing line with American patriots. Gathering the troops together, Nelson said, he pointed to a beautiful brick home a few hundred yards away, and he said, you see that house? That's my house. And if I know General Cornwallis, he will establish that for his headquarters. And then uh, Governor Nelson recommended to the American patriots that they fire on his own home. And they did. And the very first cannonball struck the dinner table where a whole group of British officers were gathered as the house was destroyed. It's one thing to talk about freedom. It's quite something else to destroy one's own house to help make freedom a reality. Thomas Nelson understood that to hold on to his current way of life would mean forfeiting the life he was desperately seeking. And on October 19th, the British troops surrendered. The world's greatest superpower had just been defeated by an army that it couldn't afford to put shoes on its soldiers' feet. The British discovered that it's hard to stop an army willing to sacrifice everything they currently have for something infinitely better on the other side. You know, the same is true for the church. It would be hard to stop a group of Christ followers willing to sacrifice everything they have for something infinitely better on the other side. And you know what? That's exactly what Jesus was seeking to do, to develop a group of Christ followers who were willing to sacrifice everything. In the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus called his 12 disciples and he said, I will make you fishers of men. They went from town to town and village to village announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand. Most importantly, the king was at hand. And they didn't know it. They couldn't see it. They didn't understand it. Jesus healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He walked on water. He fed a group of 5,000. He fed a group of 4,000. His miracles authenticated his message and his role as Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. This took place, let me just go back and connect for us. In last week, or excuse me, the last time we were in the Gospel of Mark, which was a couple of weeks back, Jesus led his disciples into discussion in chapter 8, verse 29, and he said, But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. And that was kind of a high point in the book of Mark. It was very brief. But Peter got it. At least he got part of it. This all took place in Caesarea Philippi. Let's look at our map. Just because we have a map. Caesarea Philippi is up in the north. That's where Peter made this statement. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's where recorded in the book of Matthew that Peter said, on this rock, on this proclamation you've made, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we see um, 
you know, Jesus has been crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee. We've seen it week after week after week. He's been all around Galilee. This has been his main area. His headquarters has been in Capernaum. But now the whole Gospel of Mark is going to make a major shift. It's going to turn south because Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem. It's going to take him a while to get there, but he's not stopping. He's headed to Jerusalem for his final trip there. And that brings us to our passage today. We start with a big surprise in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. And uh, verse 31 says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. That was a loaded passage right there. This was a big surprise. Why? They had never heard it before. He had never said it yet. We're halfway through the book, and now he says it. It's old, it's old news for us. We've heard it. We hear it backwards and forwards. This is the first time they hear it. This is a big surprise for them. Uh, he began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. The term Son of Man is from uh, a term that Jesus used uh, most often in the Gospels to describe himself. It was used 81 times in all four Gospels. This is the third time in the Gospel of Mark. It's only been mentioned two times. And it's a way for him to talk about his role uh, without being controversial. If he'd have said he was the Messiah or the king, he would have got, that was a political statement. But he avoided that by using this term, the son of man. Um, Peter had identified Jesus uh, in, back in verse 29 as the Christ, and he did so correctly. But like everyone else in Peter's day, in the first century, they had a totally different view of what the Christ would be like and what he would do. And they thought he would uh, come in as a military political leader and he would utterly destroy all of his enemies and life would be good and everything was going to be blessed, no more problems. They just had this one view of the Messiah. And Peter after seeing all the miracles that authenticated who Jesus was, just assumed probably that just by miracles, Jesus was going to kill everybody. And that's what he expected. But Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things. For Peter, that doesn't sound right. Messiah? Suffer? I don't think so. Read the passages in the Old Testament. But there is one that often got overlooked, and that's Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 3 says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. This is a suffering servant. People recognized the passage, but they didn't know it was Messiah. It didn't know, they didn't know that he, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, would be the Christ. Not only that, verse 31 says that he would be rejected. Re rejected. We have rejection. He, 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. The elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law were the religious leaders of Israel. They were the clergy. Uh, unlike our culture, they were the most powerful people in the culture because religion was really important to the Jewish nation. They are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They are responsible for leadership and teaching the law. Uh, their law, they had, their law was not only civil law, it was moral law, and it superseded anybody's political law. Uh, they made up the Jewish ruling council. They made up what was called the Sanhedrin. It is that group who will make the decision to put Jesus to death, ultimately. And Jesus is teaching that uh, they will reject him. Jesus uh, clearly predicted that this would happen. Isaiah pictured this as well in Isaiah 53.3. We'll look at that again. He was despised and rejected by mankind. Rejected. He's going to suffer and he's going to be rejected. Also, he said uh, in verse 31, after three days, rise again. This is the resurrection. That there would be a resurrection. This is uh, new but the disciples won't get it. This is going to go right over their head. I mean, we know that Jesus is going to get crucified and put into the tomb, and the disciples are clueless. And yet, he taught them this. Not only that, he's going to teach them three more times in the next three chapters. This is the first Easter prediction, but they don't have the ears to hear. They have selective hearing just like we do. I read an interesting study about how we are, uh, uh, we we learn and we see what we already know. And uh, there was a there was a test of people wearing glasses where on in one lens they saw something they knew, and the other lens they saw something that they didn't recognize from their past experience. And they nearly always identified the object as one that they knew. They didn't see the other one. Uh, for example. And in in one eye, they saw the three of spades, but was red. Because they always saw it as black, they identified it as black. Because that was their past experience. And Jesus said, um, after three days, he would rise again. David the psalmist knew something about this in Psalm 16, verses 9 and 11. Do we have Psalm 16? We do not have Psalm 16. And we do not have Isaiah 52. Let me uh, quickly look at Psalm 16. David wrote this. Peter refers to it. And Paul refers to it. In Isaiah 16... um, Verses 9 through 11, uh, Scripture says, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave. David is writing this, but it foreshadows Jesus. And uh, Peter will recognize this in the book of Acts, and so will the Apostle Paul. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let the Holy One see decay. 
There's going to be a death of this person, but there will be no decay. Why? Because there will be a resurrection. And this is a passage that referred to Jesus. In Isaiah 52, verse 13, Isaiah says, and he writes, 800 years before Christ, he says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. This refers to the resurrection and the ascension. He will be raised, he will be lifted up, and he will be highly exalted. Isaiah the prophet saw this, but he saw it only vaguely. He didn't see Jesus, he just saw these events. He didn't know exactly who this would be, but he knew it was important. So, um, Jesus says he's going to suffer, he's going to be rejected, and he's going to be killed, and he's going to rise again on the third day. Now, something unusual happens in verse 32, he's rebuked. Uh, He spoke plainly about this. That is, Jesus spoke plainly about his death. He's never spoken about his death before. Uh, They didn't see it coming. Uh, He spoke about suffering. They didn't get it. He he spoke in parables. Remember, we've seen this over and over again. Jesus veiled his teaching. He didn't speak explicitly all the time. Uh, he He spoke in parables so that people would ask him questions and they could come to him. But this whole thing about suffering and death is new to right now. And he speaks very plainly. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is not Peter's best moment. This is his second worst. He rebuked Jesus. Don't do that. Um, Peter thinks that he must now step in. He's feeling very confident. He must now step in and advise Jesus and help Jesus process. Uh, Because Peter knows that the Messiah will not suffer. At least that's his opinion. That's what he, he thinks. It's just not in the cards for Messiah to suffer and be rejected. Um. Jesus had alluded to this idea of death earlier. All it was was an illusion. And you can see from the passage, Mark chapter 2, verse 20, that it's not real easy to pick up if you don't see it backwards. Um, Jesus was asked the question, why don't your disciples fast like John the Baptist fast and like the Pharisees' disciples fast? And this was Jesus' answer. He said, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. When, you, when you're with the bridegroom, you party. But when the bridegroom is taken away, and on that day, they will fast. And he was making an allusion to the time when he would be taken away. Uh, the bridegroom. He is the bridegroom. Now, all that is is an illusion. It's not like explicit or crystal clear. Um, To hear Jesus talking about suffering and death seemed impossible to Peter and the disciples. And this was the the Apostle Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. This is one that we get. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. It's easy for us to understand it because if we've placed our faith in Christ and experienced forgiveness of sins, we get this. But the cross seems foolish. 
Peter saw the cross. When Peter said there's gonna, he's going to be killed, he's going to suffer, Peter thought it was foolish. And the Jewish nation, to the Jewish nation, and Peter says this, or excuse me, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, it's a, the gospel, this message of Christ crucified, is a stumbling block for the Jews, for the Jewish people. They stumbled, they tripped over it. There is the message, there are the facts, this is the truth. And it, it, they saw this as a curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's in the law. Jesus hung on a cross, therefore he was cursed, and he was, he was cursed by God. Therefore, this cannot be good, it cannot be the Messiah. Messiah could never be cursed. It was a stumbling block for the Jews, for the Jewish nation. And it was a stumbling block for Peter right now when he hears this. Peter is deceived in his thinking. Peter has used his common sense, which turned out to be very common. He was thinking just like everybody else in his world. It was just common sense. Peter had bought into the current thinking about the Messiah and missed Jesus' revelation. Um, Peter has bought into an idea that has a satanic source. Uh, Peter has embraced the popular worldview and disregarded the words of Jesus. Peter's plan is to keep Jesus from the cross. Um, Think about this. Jesus' friend comes comes along beside Jesus and said, No, no, no. You can't can't do that. And he... What happens when somebody real close to you comes along and tries to give you advice or direction? It kind of depends on how much you trust them and how you feel. And, and Peter is, Jesus is headed to the cross. Jesus is following directly his father's will. And Peter is attempting to direct him off the course. Um. I jumped ahead just a second, but uh, here's a question I have for you. Do you ever have plans for God that aren't in, on his agenda? Because that's what Peter did. Peter had plans for Jesus, and they were not on God's agenda. And Peter tried to direct Jesus. Do you ever try to direct God with your prayers or your desires? This is what I want, Lord. John thirty-six, uh, John six, thirty-eight. Uh, Jesus explained, "For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me." That's the main thing you need to see about that passage. That Jesus was in total submission to the Father. He came to do the Father's will all the way to the cross. And Peter's saying, hey, you don't have to do that. And then in verse uh, 33, we have correction. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Peter has been attempting to uh, redirect Jesus. And Peter's plan is to keep Jesus from the 
cross and his plan is satanically inspired. He's adopted the view of the day about Messiah, who is going to be this military political leader. And um, right now, at that very moment, Satan would love if Jesus would miss the cross and not die for the whole world as a ransom for the forgiveness of sins. And Peter is just mouthing the common view of the day without thinking, without listening to Jesus. He has just bought in. And for Jesus, he says, get behind me, Satan. Because uh, Peter's words are inspired by the evil one. And the question here for us is, do you have in mind things of men that are human-focused or things of God or God's priorities? It's so easy to buy into, say, the Christian culture and what the Christian culture thinks rather than what the Scriptures say. People do it politically. They do it uh, with choices. Uh, Do you have in mind the things of men or the things of God? The real question is, whose priorities come first? Do you live for your comfort, your desires, your security, your happiness, your peace of mind, your well-being? Whose priorities come first? Matthew 6, 33, where Jesus set out a priority system. He said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus was talking about a priority system, and his desire is that uh, our desires align with his, that our lives come under his lordship, um, his kingdom priorities first, our priorities second. And his kingdom first, and this is the way I like to think of it, my kingdom is in alignment with his. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, say this, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. This is what Jesus was referring to. He was saying, Peter, you got your mind focused on the earth. You're, you're worried about the earthly kingdom, and you're missing the kingdom of God. You got wrong priorities right now, Peter. Um, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, just a comment about this passage. This does not say that earthly things aren't important. What it says is is that Christ is the most important. And we need to understand that. So that's a big surprise. Now the big challenge, uh, chapter 8, verse 34, to to chapter 9, verse 1. And the invitation is in verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. And so here we have... uh, Radical requirements for discipleship. This is to everybody. Then he called the crowd to him. He's, he's been talking to his disciples. Now he brings a crowd in. This is for everybody. This is for us. And the first thing he says, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves. And so the first thing is to deny self. It means to deny self from being the most important being in the universe. It means to to say no to self-centeredness and yes to God. It's not 
denying yourself things or food or recreation. That is not denying yourself. And this is a, this is a common Christian view. Like if I, if I deny myself ice cream, you know, that ought to please God. Or if I deny myself chocolate for three months. Or if I cut down on my drinking, you know, that this is denying myself. That's not what this is talking about. This is putting God ahead of you. This is putting self, all that you are, below all that God is. Denying yourself. You are not number one, nor should there be any idol ahead of God. An idol is something that we make the most important. Um, Denying yourself from placing anything in your life like an idol. Don't put anything ahead of Jesus. Don't put your career ahead of Jesus. Don't put your boyfriend ahead of Jesus. Don't put your sex life ahead of Jesus. Don't put your money ahead of Jesus. Don't put your home ahead of Jesus. Head of Jesus, don't put your friends, don't put your kids, don't put anything ahead of Jesus. Um, that's what it means to deny self. Secondly, take up your cross. This is a, not a Jewish metaphor. So this didn't like exist in the Jewish culture before Jesus spoke this. This is a Roman experience. The Romans, who were populated the land of Israel in those days, they governed Israel. Uh, Israel was a puppet state, and so Roman soldiers were everywhere. And when they uh, executed criminals in Israel in those days, Rome crucified them as a public spectacle. And that was kind of to help bring peace. There's a real consequence if you disobey the Roman law. And so... um, Jesus said, take up your cross. Um, In the Roman world, when a criminal was sentenced to death, they actually had to take their crossbar, and they were strapped to it, and they had to carry it to their own execution. This was a great humiliation for them. And it was a public demonstration that this criminal was now in total submission to the authorities. Jesus says, take up your cross. You don't take up his cross. He's already done that. You take up your cross. What is that? This is one that gets misused sometimes. Um, Early in our marriage, I wasn't a very fun person to live with. In fact, I hadn't yet become a follower of Christ, and Sue was a follower of Christ, and she thought I was her cross to bear. And I was very difficult to live with. And she thought God was going to sort of like punish her because she married me. I was not a follower of Christ. And that she was just going to be forced to suffer because she disobeyed. And the common Christian concept was I was her cross to bear. Well, that's actually theologically an incorrect view of what it means to to bear a cross. You know, it's not the difficult people in your life. It's not your difficult circumstances. It's not your health. Taking up the cross is to take up um, recognition that Jesus has authority over you, that you 
want to live in total submission to Jesus Christ and all that goes with it, good or bad, life or death, suffering, whatever comes. That's what it means to take up your cross. It's living in submission to Jesus, engaging in what he has for your life. It may include suffering. There's a whole lot we miss in America about suffering. It's almost like we don't even read it in our Bibles. It's in there passage after passage, and we just go right over it. But taking up your cross is to accept whatever Jesus brings your way. And then he says, follow me. And that means to follow Jesus continually. Um, You've denied self. You put Jesus in the right place. You've taken on commitment to him, taken up your cross, and now you just follow. Just stay the course. Follow. It's present tense. You follow today. You get up tomorrow. You follow tomorrow. It's one step at a time in the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives reasons in verse 35 through 37. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So Jesus is teaching here. And by the way, he isn't teaching a new way of salvation. He's not teaching a new gospel. Uh, He's teaching that if you put yourself first, then uh, you're going to lose. If you give your life to Jesus, take up the cross, deny self, take up the cross, uh, and live for Jesus and the gospel, you're going to win. You're going to be saved. He says in verse 36, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Think about it. What if you pursue the whole world? What if you got all the money in the world? What if you got uh, all the riches, all the wealth, all the fame, all the honor? What if you got it all? And Jesus said, it, it is worthless on the eternal side. It is worth nothing, and you could forfeit your soul. Verse 37, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You can't purchase your own salvation. Uh, if you save, you will lose. Uh, try to save your own life and you will lose it. If you lose your life for Jesus, if you give your life to Jesus, uh, if you let him have it, it will be saved eternally. And if you gain the whole world, you could lose Everything forfeit. Write down Psalm 49, 16 through 20, and you'll see that it's very clear in the Old Testament. What can you give in exchange? Nothing. You cannot purchase your own redemption. Consequences, verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me, Jesus said, and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... He's talking about these, by adulterous, he means those who put idols ahead of him. Spiritual adultery is idolatry when you put something ahead of God. And he's talking about his generation and this adulterous and sinful generation. The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with holy holy angels. Jesus has revealed a lot in this passage. First of all, he said the Son of Man will suffer many things. The Son of Man will be rejected by Israel's leadership. The Son of Man will be killed, and the Son of Man will rise on the the third day. But not only that, 
He will also come again as judge at his second coming. The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes. He's coming back in his Father's glory with holy angels. And he's saying, if anyone's ashamed of Jesus, he will be ashamed of you. Now, there's a lot of good things. We have a tendency to take one little passage and not read the whole Bible. Peter is going to deny Jesus three times publicly. And Jesus is going to forgive him and make a place for him. We're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about people who follow Christ. Um, the Son of Man. Daniel writes about this about 586 B.C. In Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked, and, therefore, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples in every language worshipped him. Now, the Ancient of Days, let's just go back a second. The Ancient of Days, the Israelites understood that would be God. That would be the Father, the Ancient of Days. And so someone comes into his presence, and you can see the translators think that he approached the Ancient of Days as God too. He was given authority so the Ancient of Days, the Father is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. That's like over everything. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. Sounds like the book of Revelation at the throne of God in Revelation 4 and 5. Next slide. His dominion is everlasting dominion that will, pa that will not pass away, and his kingdom was one that will never be destroyed. Sure, sure sounds like the eternal kingdom of God to me. And this is Jesus coming back. Daniel saw it. And Jesus is referring to this in Mark 8, 38. Finally, a prediction in uh, Mark 9, chapter 1. That, uh, Mark 9, chapter 1 really finishes the whole section, the last section in Mark chapter 8. Verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. So Jesus is saying, some of you who are standing with me in Caesarea of Philippi today will not experience death. You will not taste death. You will not die physically until you see the kingdom of God come with power. And so the question is, well, what does that mean? Here's a couple of thoughts. The disciples will see the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the disciples present that day at Caesarea Philippi. That would be powerful, wouldn't it, to see the death and resurrection of Jesus. The disciples will see Jesus ascend into heaven in Acts chapter 1. That would be powerful. It would also be lonely for a second. The disciples will see the Holy Spirit descend on the believers in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And the church will be birthed and 3,000 people will respond to Peter's message and be saved and the Holy Spirit will descend upon all of them and they will speak in other languages. That would be powerful. However, the very next week in Mark chapter 9, which is next week for us, Jesus will take Peter, James, and John aside and show them his glory just for a moment. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Our big challenge. First, our big challenge is to deny self. That's to uh, 
let Jesus have the driver's seat. To change places so that you're not in charge and that he is in charge. So stop making yourself so important. Let Jesus be your master. Say no to self and yes to him. Secondly, take up your cross. Intentionally offer yourself to God. Intentionally offer yourself, your life to God for whatever he wants. That's what it means to take up his cross for whatever he wants. Life or death, pain, sorrow, suffering, fun, blessing, prosperity, whatever he wants. And follow Jesus. Stay the course. Walk with Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit one day at a time, day in and day out. Imagine what it would be like just for a moment if the bridge were an army willing to sacrifice everything for Jesus. Thomas Nelson was willing to give everything for freedom. What would it be like if there were an army of Christ followers willing to sacrifice everything? So who's in charge of your life right now? What's keeping you from following Jesus every day? What is your very next step to take?